through 39. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell, on his, fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. So this past week, my daughter Bea and I rewatched Frozen 2. Now, for the adults here who may not be familiar, Frozen 2 is quite a bit more complicated of a plot than Frozen 1, so I'm not going to try to explain it to all of you. Kids, you can help the adults later, understand. I'll, but what you need to know is that at the beginning of Frozen 2, we have our wonderful team of friends who have been deeply formed by their adventures together in Frozen 1. Elsa, Anna, and Kristoff, and of course, Olaf the snowman and Sven the reindeer. Everyone is happy and everything is great until, surprise, it turns out that all is not okay. And through a series of events that I'm not going to explain, at a certain point, our team is split apart and all of our three main characters find themselves alone. And in their solitude, each of them must face something that they would rather avoid. Each of them must encounter themselves and the fears and feelings that are inside of them. And each of them gets to sing a song about it. I'm not gonna sing, guys. But kids, this is where I need your help. Anyone remember what Kristoff's song is? <laughs> lost in the Woods. Yes, Kristoff is lost in the woods. Without his beloved Anna, Kristoff realizes that he is completely lost. And he grapples with really significant identity questions like, who am I if I'm not her guy? And where am I if we're not together forever? And Anna, who remembers Anna's song? Next. Yeah, you got it, Bea. <laughs> um, the next right thing. Anna, now Anna is usually bubbly and full of positivity. She always sees the bright side of things. But in her solitude, Anna must face some really hard, dark emotions. She sings, the life I knew is over, the lights are out. Hello, darkness, I'm ready to succumb. This gravity, this grief has a gravity. It pulls me down. And she concludes, so I'll walk through this night, stumbling blindly toward the light, and do the next right thing. And anybody remember what Elsa's song is? <laughs> yeah, we gotta, someone knows all the answers. Um, show yourself. 
So Anna, Elsa's storyline is a bit more complicated, but basically she has always been a fortress, cold secrets deep inside. Uh, she has always been different. Normal rules did not apply. And she spends the film chasing after an encounter with this voice that has been calling to her, but it turns out that the voice is actually her own voice. So all along, she has actually been chasing after an encounter with herself. She is the one she has been waiting for all of her life. It's a bit more complicated, but we're just going to leave it at that. Also, uh, when Bea heard me practicing this sermon, she pointed out that I forgot that Olaf the Snowman also has his own song in solitude, which is true. Olaf is grappling with existential questions about the brief, fleeting nature of life and hoping that as he gets older, everything will make sense, complete sense. Essentially, all of, our beloved, all of our beloved characters must, in solitude, encounter what is within them, the scary, sad, hard, dark feelings, and then move through them to get to their ending, which, spoiler alert, includes saving Arendelle, making things right with the indigenous North Uldra people, and being all reunited again. But what Anna, Kristoff, Elsa, and Olaf experience is really common. Solitude opens up space to reveal those things that are within us that we might otherwise avoid. Ten years ago, as I was stumbling into my first sabbatical from my ministry work with InterVarsity, I went on a five-day silent retreat. Now, it is not lightly that I say that this experience of five days of silence was one of the most transformational experiences of my life. No powerful teaching, no robust content, no fun community and fellowship, silence, no noise, no distractions, no email, no phone, no to-do lists, five days of silence. But what opened up in that empty space when all of the clutter of distraction was cleared was the fullness of solitude. Now that might sound attractive to some of us, especially if we crave some alone time to recharge, but as you've heard many times throughout this series, solitude is not a day spa for the soul, and it's not only for introverts, it's something that we all need. Henry Nouwen in his book, The Way of the Heart writes, solitude is not a private therapeutic place, rather it is the place of conversion the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. I have no friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me. Naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude, a nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, my distractions. Solitude is the furnace of transformation, the place of great struggle and the place of great encounter. So solitude is a place of encounter. Last week, Pastor Andrew talked about the encounter with the enemy that happens in solitude. Next week, we'll focus on the encounter with God that occurs in solitude. But this week, we're looking at the encounter with ourself that we find in solitude. As much as I look back on that silent retreat and describe it as a beautiful, life-changing experience, it was not easy. 
When you step into solitude, rather than feeling warm and happy and at peace, what you often find is that whatever has been bubbling down inside of you comes up and you begin to feel. So as I, was, as I was preparing this sermon, I actually went back to my journal from that retreat experience, and I will spare you most of my decade-old journaling, but I will just share some excerpts that illustrate the emotions that were coming up for me as I entered into solitude. So here's some excerpts from my journal. First evening of this silent retreat, I am excited and expectant and nervous. I am so tired. I'm a kind of tired that is not cured by a vacation. Even this retreat will just start to touch at it. I feel like a broken record sometimes, saying over and over and over that I need rest, that I am so tired. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what will, I will find in the silence. I am afraid that there is no fix or cure to my emotional pain. I'm afraid of meeting deeper sadness, grief, and anger that I have buried. And am I angry? Yeah, I'm angry. God, I think I'm angry maybe at you for how hard this past year and a half has been. I'm angry about all of the times you seemed absent or the times that you were there were almost worse because why weren't you more active? Then I go on to write more about specific things I'm angry about. Um, am I sad? I don't know. Is grief sadness? Yes, I feel grief and sadness and disappointment. And again, I go on to write more about specific griefs that I was feeling. So I think I spent the first day and a half of that silent retreat just sleeping. In solitude, often the first thing we feel is just tired. Whenever I lead people into quiet prayer retreats, even just a day or a half day, I always say that one of the first invitations for them might be to notice if they feel tired and to take a nap. Physical rest is an essential part of our discipleship. Now there's a spectrum of tiredness it lives on a spectrum. Uh, there's good tired, which is that feeling after you have worked hard and given what you have to give and you're tired, but it's a satisfied sort of tired. It's a tired that comes from participating in God's work in the world that is yours to contribute to. Then there's unhealthy tired, when you are not getting enough sleep, when you are, your margins are low and your stress is high, and you're managing, but it feels like you're teetering on the edge. And then there is dangerous tired. Ruth Haley Barton describes dangerous tired as chronic inner fatigue accumulating over months and months. She says, when we are dangerously tired, we don't feel much of anything, good or bad. On some level, we suspect that if we did stop long enough to experience our emotions, we might be overcome by feelings we'd rather not feel. So I wonder where you would plot your soul on the spectrum of tired these days. If you're good tired, rest will keep you healthy. If you're unhealthy tired, rest can help get you back to healthy. And if you're dangerously tired, rest is necessary to help expose the need for serious change. Another emotion that I experienced and that comes up in solitude is fear. When we enter quiet, we might find that all of those fears and worries, little and big, that we do our best to try to shut down and manage day to day, come to the surface and our mind is spinning and worrying rather than calm and quiet. Another common emotion in solitude is anger. I'm sure I'm not the only one for whom anger, and especially anger at God, feels uncomfortable. 
But anger that has been shut down or unaddressed trickles into our times of quiet prayer. And when we enter solitude, we might find ourselves ruminating over situations, replaying ways that we've been wronged, hashing out things that we would like to say to those who have wronged us. In solitude, we often find sadness. Even the happy occasions in this life are intermixed with tinges of sorrow. In fact, Olaf's storyline in Frozen 2 is really, this is really what he's grappling with. As he experiences joy of friendship and the good gifts of his life, he's realizing that you can't prevent change and loss and endings. He is grappling with the sorrow-tinged joys of life. And so all of us carry sadness at some level, and in solitude, often sadness that is buried rises to the surface, and our soul tells us what griefs we're carrying, what unmet longings and disappointments we hold. Finally, in solitude, we might notice the feeling of shame because our defenses are gone. As Nowen said, we lose our scaffolding. In solitude, what is in us, who we are, is exposed. And that age-old urge to hide comes out. We feel shame. In summation, in solitude, we encounter our pain. So how is that for a marketing campaign for the practice of solitude? Go and hang out with your pain. Do you want to feel angry and sad and afraid? Have I got a spiritual practice for you? But in all seriousness, avoiding our pain will not make it go away. And these challenging emotions are within us. Even if they're below the surface, they're there, whether or not we face them. And when we don't face our pain, it leaks out in our lives to people closest to us, to the people we love. Freedom only comes when we have the courage to face our pain. Now, the problem is that we as a culture, both inside and outside of the church, have become highly skilled at avoiding pain, physical and emotional. And one of the most effective methods of avoidance we have is distraction. So I shared a little bit about, I shared about my experience with solitude during my first sabbatical 10 years ago. I'm currently in the middle of my second sabbatical from my ministry with InterVarsity. And I'm very grateful that I came into this sabbatical healthy tired, not dangerously tired like a decade ago. So as I wrote my sabbatical plan, extended solitude was not a felt need. Rather, my focus was on learning from some historic Christian contemplatives. But I have accidentally stumbled into solitude as a shaping part of my sabbatical for a few reasons. So this summer, I had the opportunity to visit a number of physical places that were significant to the formation of some great Christian contemplatives. I was in the cave where St. Benedict lived as a hermit for three years and where he developed what became the Benedictine rule of life. I was at the small garden where Claire of Assisi, one of my favorites, prayed for hours and hours each day. The forest and caves where Francis of Assisi fasted and prayed for weeks at a time. I visited the ruins in Germany of the monastery and the location of the cell where Hildegard of Bingham lived for nearly 40 years before starting her own community. And I was recently at the cave where, uh, Saint, where Ignatius of Loyola prayed uh, over a period of nine months and developed what became the Ignatian spiritual exercises. 
So all of these people that I've just mentioned ultimately lived their lives in community. They actually all started communities. For none of these people is their legacy that of an introverted hermit. Their legacy is vibrant, authentic community with social impact. Sound familiar to anyone? And yet, the Eremos, the deserted places, and the long periods of time that they spent in solitude and prayer were absolutely foundational, critical to their formation. Healthy life in community requires that we all pay attention to the discipline of solitude. I came across a statue in the Benedictine Abbey of St. Hildegard of Bingham in Germany. It is just as you enter the chapel, and the statue depicts a person with their finger over their mouth. Now, at first, I found this statue kind of off-putting. It felt like I was being shushed as I entered the church, and no one likes that feeling of being shushed. But I noticed the, the statue's other hand pointed up toward God. It was not requesting silence for the sake of silence or to preserve some sense of decorum and properness in a space of worship. It is silence for the sake of listening. We quiet our voices so that we might listen and hear God's voice. And so, with all this in mind that I was taking in, I felt the invitation to quiet my content inputs for this sabbatical season. Now, if you are familiar with the Strength Finders assessment at all, you have to understand that input is one of my top five strengths. I thrive on input, and I'm often taking in really good inputs through podcasts and articles and think pieces and Instagram follows. But you know, there's a lot of fluff and distraction input that gets in as well. And I wondered, what might happen if I silenced my input just for a season, even the good stuff, would it cut down on the distractions in my life and perhaps open up space for me to hear God's voice more clearly? So I deleted my podcast apps and cut out most of my digital inputs. <clears throat> to be clear, this is temporary for six months. Turns out, when you minimize inputs and distraction, a lot of space for solitude opens up in your everyday life. Okay, so now the other thing I did was I signed up to participate on a walking pilgrimage without somehow fully grasping when I signed up the reality that if I wanted my body to be able to walk 12 plus miles a day on multiple days on this pilgrimage, I was going to need to actually take training for it seriously. And so before I even left, for the pilgrimage, I spent a month walking two to four hours a day, several days a week, without my AirPods, without my inputs that I had given up. Uh, it was a lot of hours of walking by myself. And so this is how I have accidentally stumbled into solitude this sabbatical. Lots and lots and lots of solitude without stepping foot into a silent retreat center. A friend asked me recently if it had worked. Had quieting my inputs helped me listen to and hear from God? And what I said to her is, I'm not sure, maybe. Mostly, it has helped me pay more honest attention to myself. Without the distractions, I have spent hours face-to-face -face with myself, the fun and the not-so-fun parts. 
So in this scripture passage today, we see a picture of Jesus going into solitude and facing what is within him. The story takes place on the night that Jesus will be arrested before his trial and crucifixion. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 starts. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. So in Luke's narrative of this story, Luke 22, it says that Jesus went as usual, or as was his custom, to this place. So we can gather that this is Jesus. Jesus had a habit of going to places of solitude to pray. This was a developed practice, you might say, of his, to slip away and be alone in prayer. And Gethsemane seems to have been one of those places for him outside of Jerusalem. He says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there to pray. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, when I'm struggling and need help, I imagine that I will go to prayer to feel calm and confident and less worried. But notice that it doesn't say, Jesus began to feel happy and at peace. No, it says Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. In the solitude of prayer, Jesus begins to touch his pain. He begins to feel his feelings. And Jesus was overwhelmed by his feelings. He was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Have you ever felt that way? Like your pain is just too much to face. <clears throat> Kids, it's kind of how Anna was when she's singing the next right thing in Frozen 2, that feeling. So what does Jesus do when he is overwhelmed by his pain? He calls on his friends. He says, stay here, keep watch with me. I need your presence. To face this, I need community. And let me just say that personally, I've never done an extended time of solitude, so like multi-day time of solitude, without the touch point of meeting briefly with a good spiritual director once a day. For me, that little bit of human presence helps me stay in the solitude with God. But then Jesus continues. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus courageously faces his pain. He doesn't run away from it. He goes to the place of pain. He doesn't distract or numb himself from the feelings. And he meets God in his pain. He goes through this movement. First, he gives God his feelings, unfiltered, unedited, and raw. Then he gives God his desires. He says, what I want is to not have to go through this. I don't want to have to go through this betrayal and suffering and death. Jesus is just being honest. He wants there to be another way, and he tells God that. Third, finally, he gives God his trust. Yet not as I will, but as you will, he says. He comes to a place of surrender. Now, I think that often we want to get to that place of surrender right away, or we feel like we should be at that place of surrender right away. 
But Jesus only comes to that place through wrestling, through facing his emotions, owning his desires, giving them to God, and moving through it with God honestly. So this is the example that God gives to his apprentices. This is the pattern. Go into solitude, get away from the noise and distraction of ordinary life. Let yourself feel. Let whatever is in you come up, whether it's joy and gratitude or exhaustion, fear, grief, whatever it is, let yourself feel it. Stay with the pain, follow it all the way to God. Now, just the simple act of noticing and naming your emotions before God can be really wonderful, healthy for the soul. But for followers of Jesus, we don't stop there. Once we notice and name, then we can offer our feelings up to God for our transformation. And we do this by following the same three movements as Jesus in the scripture passage. First, we give God our feelings. Pray your honest feelings to God. Prayer is a place to be real with God, whether you have bitterness or you're worried or you're angry or sad, pray that. Bring those feelings to God. Second, give God our desires. Our desires, met and unmet, are often at the root of our feelings, whether we are happy or sad or angry. So tell God what you long for. Pay attention to what you desire. Tapping into our deepest desires is critical to the spiritual life because our truest desires reflect God's desires in us and for us. Of course, the challenge is that our desires are complex and confusing and sometimes conflicting. And so we offer our desires to God, inviting God to shape and cultivate and form them. Finally, we give God our trust. We come to a place of surrender. We release our attempts to engineer and control the outcomes of our life. Again, we don't get to this honest place of surrender without the first two movements. Surrender comes as we offer our true feelings, our desires, and then encounter anew the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of our God. But when we find ourselves at that place of surrender, when you feel your heart yield, that is the fulcrum point. That is where you start to move toward healing when the inner chaos begins to find peace. So this is the pattern. Go to the place of pain, face it head on, and meet God there. The great lie is that we can somehow heal by moving away from our pain, when really we heal by moving toward it and meeting God and community in it. So when I went on my first silent retreat, uh, my, my first experience of extended solitude at that silent retreat 10 years ago, that is what happened. I went into it dangerously tired. I was carrying so much unprocessed pain. And in the solitude, without the things that usually let me avoid or numb feelings, I had the space and time to face that pain, to feel and to offer my feelings and my longings to God. But what made that experience so transformational was that in the solitude, eventually, I encountered God. I experienced God's love quietly, gently, persistently drawing out the poison from all of the pain that I went in with so that I could once again see beauty and life 
so that I could surrender to God's love. Now, my experience with solitude this sabbatical has been different. At this particular moment in my life, I'm not in a place where I'm carrying a lot of unprocessed and unaddressed pain. And so what I am encountering in solitude is a little less dramatic. It's more of the ordinary, everyday gunk inside of me. But it's that ordinary stuff that actually has a really big impact on my everyday relationships. What I've encountered in solitude is that underneath the surface, I can be really overly critical in some of my relationships, and I cling to my sense of rightness in a way that keeps me from freely and fully loving as I would like to. And in solitude, without my go-to distractions, I have also encountered my everyday grumpiness that comes up pretty frequently when things don't go the way that I want or when I'm cleaning or doing a task that I'd rather not do. And what I'm noticing is that in my grumpiness, I really want to find somebody or something to blame. It just feels easier to blame someone than to sit with and own and move through my own unpleasant emotions. And even though it initially feels disheartening and discouraging to honestly own some of the ordinary, everyday gunk inside of me, it ultimately feels like freedom and hope because I know that this encounter is the first step to healing. And I'm actually experiencing it as God's deep love and grace that God would want me to be able to better receive and offer love to others. And so I wonder, what is your invitation into the practice of solitude this week? How is God inviting you to encounter yourself in solitude and follow the pattern of Jesus to give God your feelings, give God your desires, give God your trust? So just now take a moment and consider, are there any places in your everyday life that could maybe be opened up for solitude by eliminating distractions? Just consider, is there a step, like one step, that you want to take this week to minimize distraction? Many people fear the quiet. They are afraid of what lies beneath the surface that will come out in solitude. But don't be afraid. What you will find waiting for you in the solitude, beneath the deepest depths of your soul, is love. The God of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Spirit, are there waiting to welcome you, waiting to love you, to heal you, to set you free. In solitude, when we are exposed and laid bare, we can experience the God who loves, loves us, forgives us, and heals us just as we are. So go. Jesus is waiting for you in the quiet. Amen.